You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. This is episode 120 whew, of Retired Racehorse Radio on the Horse Radio Network, part of Equine Network, brought to you by Kentucky Performance Products, Cashel Company, and Morton Buildings. Retired Racehorse Radio is your guide to the adoption, care, and training of the retired racehorse. Brought to you in cooperation with the Retired Racehorse Project and New Vocations Racehorse Adoption Program. On today's show, we get a glimpse into the day of the life of an exercise rider with Marta Solhog. We speak with Raymond White Jr. about his book, A Jockey and Her Horse, the remarkable story about America's first Black female jockey, Cheryl White. We then dive into part two of our flying lead change training tip with Leander Cooper from New Vocations and wrap up with our adoptable horse of the week. Stay tuned. And they're off on Retired Racehorse Radio, the podcast that is your guide to the adoption, care, and training of the retired racehorse. This is Joy Orr in Detroit, Michigan. And this is Kristen Kovach-Bentley in Jamestown, New York, and you're listening to Retired Racehorse Radio. It's cold. It's a new year, and it's also cold. Yeah, yeah, we have to do the, like, what's the temperature where you are thing, I think. So, I don't what's think the temperature I even where you are? Like, yeah, <laughs> okay, hang on. Look it up real fast. Um, last time I checked, it was actually somewhat warmer today. Um, so for listeners, it is January 17th. By the time you're listening to this, I pray it is not these temps anymore. It is about 10 degrees. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. We're at a 14 feels like minus one. Oh, I didn't even look at the field temp. It probably doesn't feel good. Maybe don't do that. Hurt my face. Three degrees. You know what? That. That's not bad. That's, That's not bad. George. George is in Florida. I don't want to know. So, George, stay muted. <laughs> George, it better be raining. <laughs> yeah, George, you better be comfy. But uh, we don't get hurricanes. We don't get alligators. We don't get iguanas falling out of trees. No, so, well, no. I guess we do occasionally have like the random mountain lion or giant cat that someone shouldn't own as a pet so oh george just put 70 degrees fahrenheit in the chat thanks george that makes us feel much better i am wearing um i'm actually in pajamas this is why we don't do a video podcast folks <laughs> i'm in pajamas and over top of the leggings i put on a floor length skirt just for an extra layer <laughs> um i was so wearing my snow pants yesterday in the house uh, in the house nice and while i wasn't podcasting i was doing sales pitches so well, you know, they only see you from the shoulders up, so that's fine. <laughs> what are you um, doing at the farm? How do you stay warm when you're at the barn? Oh, it is a system. It is a whole system. So for me, I actually get chest pains after a certain temperature drop um, for my autoimmune. Uh, so I have to really take my warmth seriously. So I have a base layer, and then I add another type of like athletic base layer on top and then I have some sort of sweater and then I have my heated vest which is turned all the way up in these temperatures and then I have my snow pants and then I have my jacket and then I have a scarf a hat gloves and then sometimes if I'm feeling really really crazy I'll also add my arctic skirt Ooh, do you have one of those I love mine yes I do oh yeah I have like the wool lined in fleece and I'm really glad I got one before that company, I think, went under, I think, during COVID. Yes. Although there yeah. are other companies who do similar oh, things. Yeah, there's Etsy. plenty of like copycat so, ones. So yeah, if, if you guys you're interested, are looking, just Google riding skirt. skirt. 
Yeah, yeah, you'll find something similar. Yeah, yeah. Mine is nice for writing, but I'm barely doing any writing, so it's like, well, I don't really use this much. I do love bringing it out though, at the like beginning of winter, because the horses are always terrified of it for me. Because yeah, like, I, have, I have a lot of baby mine, horses, like, shocks them a little bit, you know. Like as I'm getting. Oh, and the other inconvenient thing with riding around the farm is that I have to mount and dismount so many times to get gates. Mm-hmm. And then every time you get on, then you've got to like rejuice everything around, you know, because the skirt yeah. ends up like wadded under your leg. So it's not super convenient, but yeah, it is nice. I almost wore mine today just to wear. Cause I, I don't ride generally if it's below 25, just cause I'm like, that's not that much fun for me at that point. And then I don't, I imagine it's not that much fun. For no, I, mean, I kind of just let them like run around no. in the arena. Is the yeah. Normal I've been, thing hand walking all this week because the mm-hmm. we actually don't have very much snow at the farm which is really unusual for us normally we have like a pretty good snow base um mm-hmm. so of course the ground is super frozen and it's all like knobbly so they're barely walking around so like jobber's really prone to stocking up and wes is aging mm-hmm. so he's prone to stocking up so i've sort of carved out like an ice-free path in the farm Look driveway you. so, so we, i've been putting in i put in about two miles a day hand walking one horse at a time between the three that of them. Keeps you so, fit though too. Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm actually kind of happy with this. Cause then if I, you know, keep up a good brisk walking pace, it's good for the horses, but then I stay really warm. But the first like first half a lap with the first horse, I'm like, I would like to die. I hate this. It's so cold. Mm-hmm. And then I warm up and it's fine. But so yeah, we've actually been having like a fairly productive week in terms of like making sure everyone is getting enough exercise and staying moving. Cause then, you know, if the horse is moving, everything else is moving like the digestive tract and everything else. So I'm like a yeah. little paranoid, but everyone's been knockwood. Everyone's been in good shape. So that's nice. Yeah. All it's fine. We'll get through it. Have still been going out during the day, at least for a few hours, if not the whole sunny day. Cause we've had a lot of sun this week, even though it's been cold, we've had a lot of sun and the wind hasn't been awful since uh, the weekend storm. So you know, they'll go out, they they do their thing. We got some snow, not as much as I hoped, but enough where it's okay footing. So I'm kind of like, uh, you'll be all right. But we've done a little bit of like running around in the the indoor as she wants to. I have to admit, having her, she's not ultra playful is a nice thing right now where I kind of yeah. like, <laughs> I don't have to worry about her getting herself sweaty or all worked up. She's just kind of like, um, I'm good if I have my water and I'm good if I have my hay. I don't need too much. Nice. Um, so, and honestly, it was kind of good timing because she got injured. We did have all the mud. It looks like she tweaked a muscle. Not serious. So it was good, but it did take about three weeks to heal up back to normal. So, you know, it's, it's all working out. We're a little bit behind where I was hoping to be at the beginning of this year, but it's supposed to warm up in the next couple days. So we'll get back into routine and most likely mud. Yeah. <laughs> That's the problem, right? We have to get through mud season before we get to anything else. So yes. So oh, well, there's a season for everything. So we just have to appreciate what we've got going for us now, which exactly. is sunny days and wind chill. <laughs> sunny days, wind chill. <laughs> and, you know, knock on wood, everyone's healthy. And that's like the number one thing. Yeah. Yes. We'll get through it. We'll, we'll get, get through there. it. But I know we always talk about our New Year's resolutions and things like that. Do you have anything that you're bringing or hoping to achieve this year? Because you had your roping and you like knocked out of the park last year. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm like, ooh, can I do that again? I don't know. Yeah. And this is like such a kind of a transitional, I don't want to say transitional year because like, well, I'm not really going anywhere, but I just don't know what it is that I want to do this year, like showing wise. So 
you know, and like, again, we lost Gandalf in November. So now this is one of those, like, I just want to enjoy my horse years. Yeah. I think. So no big goals. Gonna, just going to have a good time. the same boat. Like, I think we'll do the online shows and maybe like one or two off sites because we have some local shows that are close by. So if it works out, I'll do that. But I'm not really putting pressure on myself this year. I kind of just want to get back to foundations and it would be really nice to score a, a 70 in training where my horse holds it together. She's actually looking really fit right now. It's the first she time. She does look awesome in your she's videos. Been, oh, she's been feeling amazing. And it's been really inspirational. And I just feel like we're consistently clicking. And I'm going to be putting her in in 30-day training this spring. And I'm like a little bit sad and nervous because like I've been doing the whole thing myself. But I think it's time for her to do a little bit of training without me and come back a little more educated. So excited oh, to scary. see. Yeah. It's like sending your kid oh. off to college. I say this not having a kid. So yeah. I know. Same. <laughs> Parents same. of college students, you let me know. <laughs> but yeah, it does feel that way in a lot of ways. So I've made the That's plans. Exciting, it's going to be no later than May, but it, it depends when the trainer comes back from Florida. So, mm. but sometime April, May, she'll, She'll be going into boot camp for at least 30 days. That's exciting, though. It'll be really cool to see the differences and changes. And then, you know. Yeah, I'm excited for it, but I'm also nervous. But I I think it'll make such a big difference in getting us to that next step. And then really getting to have some fun because there's there's a lot of like bucket items I'd like to do with her um, while she's still in her active years because she is 13 this year. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, you know, I know like, oh, horses live so much longer now. We take so much better care of horses. But like, truthfully, yeah, they get to that middle teen and you Mm -hmm. you start to have to think about it. Jobber's 15. So, yeah. So, yeah, now we're entering the just enjoy my horse phase, I think. So we'll try to do some trail rides. And I would like to do more roping around the farm. I would like to catch some calves this spring and be useful. So that's scary that once you take that breakaway off, I start really worrying about the health and safety of my own thumbs. So we'll see. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. But I, I love that we're keeping it <laughs> a very holistic year. Maybe that's just like the general vibe of just enjoying the horse. And it's 2024, man. We made it this far. Let's enjoy we made the it ride this far. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> All of us collectively. No pressure. No pressure. Just fun. Um, and speaking of fun, I'm actually really excited for this episode. I know we've already done our interview with Marta, but listeners haven't heard it yet. It's going to be very intriguing. I learned a ton from her. And also, I don't know how she has that much energy in a day. And very impressive woman. So I think you guys will really like that. We're also going to be speaking to Raymond White Jr. And his sister's story is just amazing. And I think as we're looking at women getting more involved in racing and involved we've always been there but we're now getting featured and getting attention and getting recognition so i think this is such a critical story to bring to the table and we're going to wrap it up with new vocations which is always a fun time and full of temptation to start your year so before we dive into all that we're going to hear from our premier sponsor kentucky performance products this nutritional minute is brought to you by kentucky performance products More and more horse owners are managing older horses. One of the best ways to care for the senior horse in your life is by prioritizing their digestive tract health. Older horses are less able to maintain a well-balanced microbiome and repair and replace damaged tissues. This can lead to an uptick in ulcers, colic, or free fecal water syndrome. 
poor gastrointestinal health decreases the horse's ability to digest and absorb adequate nutrients. It also impacts the effectiveness of the immune system, leaving older horses less able to fight off diseases such as EPM. Adding a research-proven digestive supplement to your older horse's diet can help maintain a healthy GI tract and reduce the incidence of digestive issues. We recommend ProbioticWise to our customers with senior and geriatric horses. ProbioticWise contains the true probiotic Saccharomyces boulardii. Unlike other yeast-based probiotics, S. boulardii remains viable through the acid environment in the stomach. It supports the healing of damaged tissues, reduced inflammation, and the optimal digestion and absorption of nutrients. Furthermore, ProbioticWise contains fermentation metabolites that support a well-balanced microbiome. ProbioticWise is sold through your veterinarian, so ask your vet if ProbioticWise is right for your older horse. You can learn more about ProbioticWise at kppvet.com. Got questions about your feeding program? We can help. Email Karen at questions at kppusa.com or call us at 859-873-2974. Joy, it's super exciting when we can have a listener on who's also a super cool person in the racing industry. Um, we have with us today Marta Solhag. She has been sort of, well, like we've kind of been in each other's orbits for a while, haven't we, Marta? Like we have some mutual friends and I knew that Marta was doing a really cool job um, starting their horses for the racetrack and then also exercise riding. And I had wanted to meet her for a long time. And apparently you also wanted to meet me for a while. And then we finally crossed paths in November. So that was really cool to finally see you in person. And of course, when I saw Marta, she was like riding young horses outside in the dark. And I was like, well, this girl's kind of a badass. Like, <laughs> there she goes on these like spicy baby thoroughbreds, like no worries. And, you know, I could hear you like... We were a couple paddocks away and I could hear you like, oh, yeah, good job, good girl, you know, and I was like, this girl's cool. So we're super excited to have you with us today at Retired Resource Radio. So welcome. Thank you. Well, as you said, we we were both kind of following each other and thanks to friends that we have in common. And I was really looking forward to meeting you that night. So I was glad you came by. Yeah, I hope I didn't let you down, <laughs> being not nearly as cool in person as I seem to be on the internet. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, we definitely, I was like, oh my gosh, we've got to have Marta on because I think the role of, you know, the person who starts racehorses under saddle and then also works them on the track, I think we we don't really think about that role very much, but that's such an important part of a thoroughbred's life is the start that they get. And that's why personally, I never, ever want to do cult starting again in my life. Like that's too much responsibility. I will gladly have Marta do it for me. Uh, <laughs> so like, you know, like that really gets a horse started for the rest of his life. So like, how do you think of like, how do you approach that responsibility when you're starting a horse? Well, to me, the foundation should be pretty much the same. It doesn't matter what breed or what discipline you're shooting for. All those basics are important. Not it doesn't matter if you're, you're going to be racing or show jumping or if you're going to be sorting cows. The technology of it is still the same thing. You still want them to be happy doing what you ask and to do it with confidence and just, you know, know how to do it. The left, right and stop as well as walking forward and 
being confident is just important. It it's, sounds very easy when you say it, right? Like, oh, just left, right, go, stop. You know, <laughs> but but you know, when I, I saw you in November, you were out in, you know, essentially what was an unused turnout paddock because our friends farm, you know, she doesn't have really riding facilities, you know, and in my mind, I'm always picturing like, this has to be done in an arena, like a safe space, you know, with like a good wall around it, maybe a round pen to start and, you know, they have a round pen there and that's great. Um, You know, but you were just out there kind of like out for a hack, you know, the same way I would work my, you know, 15 year old horse at home. And I thought that was really cool, you know, and like watching the way you were riding, you were letting the horse carry itself, you know, and learning how to balance with a rider, you know, and you were still asking them to bend and stuff. And I think, you know, especially for thoroughbreds on the track, we tend to stereotype and be like, oh, they're not really, they're only learning how to, you know, basically steer and go fast. But you were really asking these horses, you know, it looked like the same way that you might be schooling a green hunter under saddle, say, you know, the way you were riding. So I was really impressed by, you know, the the way you had these horses going, you know, and, and how do those skills eventually translate to when they head to the track and get their exercise rider for the first time? Well, I grew up show jumping and taking lessons like a lot of other people. And so that basic skill came with me from that. And the first trainer I worked for, he was a steeplechase trainer. And that was just one thing he hammered down on was that every horse was going to balance themselves. They were going to use themselves. We jogged miles and miles in the woods up and down if it was snow outside we'd be out there jogging miles and deep deep snow and it helps them you know it strengthens up their body and makes it easier for them to stay sound yeah for sure if they learn that as young horses they're gonna chances are they're gonna bring that along to the racetrack and i'm sure a lot of people think that we just gallop wildly around the racetrack every morning but a lot of the work on the racetrack is slow. It's slow and steady. And you'd rather want your horse to carry itself than going around with the head in the air. That just weakens their back. And a horse with a bad back is not happy and good horse. Certainly isn't a fast horse. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> or an efficiently not. moving horse, you know, that's going to race well. So, yeah, that makes sense. So like generally, you know, like, like there we were, and this was a small boutique farm, you know, so there we were like on a November evening watching you, you know, hack horses out. Is that how, you know, like in my mind, I think I'm envisioning like a big farm, like Windstar, you know, where they're, I don't want to say industrial producing horses, but you know, they have so many cults that they're starting every year, you know, that I think I'm sure they have like kind of a method to it, but you know, the majority, and I don't, I just don't know, you know, in the industry, are the majority of horses started more, you know, in one of these larger programs or how many horses are really kind of started the way that you're starting them? Like one, like freelance rider kind of going out farm to farm and working horses. I think there's more than you'd imagine. Um, you know, you have these large farms like Judmont and Windstar that will have their own program. Right. But the majority of like smaller trainers will have their own little setup on small farms. They might not even have a round pen. And it's up to you as a rider and horseman to use what you got and try to get that horse to being the best it can be in that situation. 
So like from the business standpoint, like how did you get started? Did you just like put your name out there and be like, Hey, I'm Marta. I'm available. <laughs> like, like how does that work? You know, it's really cool. It's a cool job, but I'm just like, I'm totally floored by the logistics of it. You know, like how you find, and I guess it maybe it's the same way as like a regular sport horse trainer, you know, and I'm just being kind of naive, but like, how do you, how do you get your name out there to, to find, you know, gigs like this? Well, the horse industry as a whole is a lot of word of mouth, you know, friends of friends and people helping each other. And sometimes it's one rider getting hurt that gets you the first opportunity, which you hate that your friend is getting hurt, but it's also good for you to get the business. Yeah. And, (laughs) uh, you know, you do a good job for a couple of people and they're happy with what you've done. and they will take your name on to the next. And I prefer to stick with the smaller people. I like the small boutique style farms. I can usually take my time a bit more than what I would in a bigger place. And even then, I've started horses for bigger farms. And most of them give me time to do what I feel like I need to do and what I need to do to stay safe, both for my sake and the horses. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. Cause I think we, you know, we tend to get in this mindset of like, you know, they're just, they're getting them, they're rolling them out and getting them ready for the races. But yeah, that's nice that it's still an individual approach, you know, horse by horse. That's really cool. So now in the morning, you're also exercise riding at the track. Are you, you're mostly based out of the thoroughbred training center in Lexington? Yeah, I am. I uh, ride out for Danny Weir and his wife, China. And they keep uh, breaking and pre-training operation. Mostly they start horses at the farm and pre-train some and bring them to the racetrack where they do their back work. Usually we take them up to like three eighths breezes and get them introduced to the starting gate back life. Nice. Yeah, that's cool. So what what is like the average morning at the training center look like for you or for any exercise rider? Well, I usually show up somewhere around six, six thirty, depending on how many horses we have in the barn and how much there is to do. For me, it's usually start by checking the legs, checking on horses, checking that everybody's eating their breakfast and everybody's happy and healthy. It's getting horses ready to go out to the track and usually riding them myself unless we have other riders coming by. For most people at the track, it's riding horses, getting orders from trainers, giving your feedback. And every time you hit that track, you try to beat that horse as good as you can and get as much out of that workout as you can. So what does a workout look like? You know, like, like there's some warm up part and then you know the actual like say if you're breezing i know that that's a more formal process but like what does a training session look like at the track usually you would warm up everything from half a mile to a mile of jog um some people would jog longer some will jog shorter depending on also depends on the horse some horses needs a little bit further of a warm-up time but you want them to be moving nice and limber and feel good before they turn around to gallop. 
And usually a gala for us is, or for me, is usually pretty easy, pretty steady. You want them to use themselves, carry themselves, and but be content in themselves. Sometimes that means you're going very nice, relaxed. Sometimes that means you're galloping just a little bit quicker. But for me, I never really breeze anything. I'm a bigger rider and I leave, totally leave that to the jockeys. For me, the favorite part is getting to work with the young horses and the pre-trainers and get them to where they're ready to do their best for the job. Nice. So, and you know, this is like kind of a unique thing to thoroughbred training. I think, you know, that you have the trainer who does not, you know, I don't know in some situations they do ride themselves, but then you also have the training rider or the exercise rider. So how much freedom do you have then as the rider, you know, to say like, "Mm, I don't feel like this is ending on a good note. Can I, you know, do X, Y, or Z, you know, to help bring the session around? Like, do you have a lot of leeway and freedom or is it really up to the trainer to say, no, you need to do this. You need to do that. You need to stop here, stop there. Well, I have a really good boss. I I have to say both of them are excellent horse people and the horse is the main focus. So he trusts me to know the horses I'm riding and to know whether that horse needs to maybe do a little less or do a little more. And it's expected that I will do what the right thing to do. And it's really nice having that trust and be able to modify the training as I think it should be. But when everything comes to he is the boss and he knows how to ride himself, he rides a lot of horses himself Mm -hmm. and is very talented. So we usually talk things through and agree on a plan and it's very easy, which is nice. I like that. I like that, you know, that there's conversation, you know, involved and it's not just, you know, what the boss says goes, you know, and and you get some. All exercise riders have that leeway. Some get orders and have to follow that to like point to point. Mm -hmm. And it's really great not having to do that every time. Right. Yeah. Cause ultimately as the rider, you know, you're the one feeling the horse in the moment, you know, to know like, maybe this horse isn't ready to do this or needs to do something different. So yeah, yes, that's good um, to know. Sometimes that. you don't see everything just walking out of the barn into the track and mm-hmm. you could be on the other side of the track and the horse doesn't feel quite right. And you're just, I've been in the situation before where I've sat there and been like, mm, I don't know, like, I don't want to gallop, but I think the trainer will be angry at me if I don't gallop in the situation I'm now. I don't have that problem. If something doesn't feel right, I just get on around to where I can talk to him and we figure out a game plan. That's really cool. So now somehow you are juggling all of that in the morning and then like the freelance, you know, riding at small farms in the evenings and afternoons. And then you're also a student, aren't you? (laughs) I am. Yeah. How, gosh. So like a day in the life of Marta is a little wild, huh? <laughs> There's a lot going on. Are you a full-time student? Are you, are you at UK? I am a full-time student at EKU. Oh, okay. okay. Gosh. Um, I study accounting. The plan is to try to combine the two 
equine and accounting and maybe ag. Nice. You're in the right place for it for sure. So for sure. Well, that's cool. That's good to know though, that like, you know, if you want to hustle, you can, you know, work your way through school and do this. So, um, Oh, you can absolutely. And have plenty of horses in your life. So, okay. Do you have any advice for someone who might be looking to like break into this industry as a rider? Like how, how do you get started? Try to get in with somebody that cares both about you and the horses is it's not an easy industry. It's tough. It's, it's really tough on you, both mentally and physically, but there are really good people in it as well. There's really nice horses to ride. Go by a barn and talk to the people. If they have a farm, chances are you can start out on the farm where things are a little bit more slower and laid back and you can get a feel for it. Yeah. So basically just start like pounding the pavement, get your name out there, talk to people. You just have to be willing to work. Right. It's uh, it's no sitting on your butt and do nothing or twiddling your thumbs. It's it's hard work and show up in the mornings and stay as long as you need to stay extra if you want to, or if you needed to. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I'll go back to when I first met you, you were out there riding in the dark, you know, because the work had to get done and (laughs) the sun had set. (laughs) Here we were. (laughs) So yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's like the ultimate horse girl job for sure. I mean, we all know, you know, horses are long hours and hard work, but yeah, I think for sure, if you're working your way through school, that's even more so. So good for you. Well, it's always just trying to get everything to fit in the hours you got. Mm-hmm. During the summer, it's way easier when you can stay out and ride until eight. It's no problem. Right. And I usually try to get a good foundation in during those nice days to where as that night when we met, I could ride out on those two-year-olds and they were happily going around even though it was halfway dark and I didn't see much. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you did the work already to put the foundation and the trust in them. So they were like, okay, <laughs> this is fine. Yeah. yeah no, they were totally cool with that. And, yeah. you know, it's, they were happy to put around there and hopefully they saw a little bit better than what I did. Right. And, yeah. I, I've heard that horses have good night vision, which I will assume is correct and not think yeah. about it too much <laughs> when I'm also yeah. out in the dark. Right. Exactly, <laughs> nice. yeah. And then you also have your own horses too, right? You have at least one off-track thoroughbred. How many horses do you have? I have two. I have one off-track and then I also have a quarter horse mare. Um, so and I think my that's where track. we first like found each other electronically, right? Like on yes. social media, we were like, we have yeah. Western thoroughbreds. Yeah. <laughs> guard he uh, i met him must be it was back in 2016 when a guy came up to me and asked if i wanted to work with his horse and he was taking him to the racetrack and was gonna try to get him back to the races so me and guard got to know each other on the racetrack and hands down he's one of the strongest horses i've ever galloped so. <laughs> But he also had just a really good mind. And when the day came that he didn't have a job at the racetrack anymore, the owner just said, like, if you want him, he's yours. 
you, the two of you have the connection and you should have him. I love it. So I took him with me and he's really the best partner I've ever had. He's uh, been very, very willing. Like I took him trail riding and to Hunter Paces while he was at the racetrack. Oh, that's so up, cool. Oh, I showed up to a Hunter Pace at Masterson Station in Lexington with the exercise saddle and blue bridle and polos and the whole get up. It was great. He walked around there and jogged around and popped over some jumps and it was just another day, which really just goes to show the thoroughbreds they just see so much in their career that noise and horses is really nothing new. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, and you do some, you know, cow stuff with him too, right? Yes. Uh I got him on cows. We sort cows, we rope some cows, which it took time getting him used to the cows and oh, he was course, yeah. at first he was pretty intimidated by them. But thoroughbreds are real workaholics and when they figure out they have a job, hard to steer them off that job. So he he found his liking with the cows and during those last sortings we did, he was really getting at it. Like he would hook up on a cow just on his own and be following that. And uh, the same thing, roping is, is solid for me. I also love to that like you're doing all these things too as a writer that like you are not a one trick pony. <laughs> you're, you're you're as well rounded as the the horses are doing exercise riding and all the <laughs> all the western stuff. That's so cool. I love that. Yeah, no, it's the uh, horses are such a it's such a big world, you know, and horses are. I think we lim- we limit the horses more than they are. You know, mm-hmm. we like to point that this breed should just be like quarter horses should just be Western ponies and thoroughbreds should just be racehorses and like and no like warm bloods should be on the jump course. But really, any horse can go do different things. They may have limits, but they can still do it. That makes so much sense. And somehow I've never thought of it that way that like, these are just human like applications, you know, that we've put yeah, on them. No. Like that horse, no, that's a warm blood that can't work cows. Usually humans get in the way more than anything else. <laughs> Generally. Yeah. That's how it goes. Yeah. No, I, I have a friend, she sorts cows and ropes cows on her curly horse. And oh my gosh, <laughs> watching that little curly mare go after them cows high knees and whatever she needs to it's i love it it makes you realize that they can all enjoy things like that well the horse doesn't know what he was bred yeah. for right like, they don't know it yeah horse is just horsing so yeah <laughs> i love it so marta one more question because we're dying to know um before we wrap have you what's the coolest horse you've ever gotten to ride at the track either at the track or in training oh my gosh <laughs> Yeah, no pressure. I know that was a that's a lot of horses. <laughs> <laughs> How many do you think you've ridden in your career so far? I don't I have no idea. Oh man, um, you gotta start counting. <laughs> I can't just like keep a little app on your phone or something. <laughs> Between different countries and so many horses that I've started. Maybe even just your favorite horse if you have one that stands out. Other um, than guard. <laughs> guard is 
definitely the favorite. Back in Sweden, when I was 18, I got my amateur jockey license and I got to ride six races in Norway and Sweden. And the filly that gave me my first and only win as a rider, uh, I met her when she was two and got to ride her in some of her early works. And winning a race on her was really big and just one of those memorable nights. I'd say she's pretty special. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow. There's been a lot. Also, you got a win in only six races. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. I got one win and it it was great. But at this point, it seems like such a long time ago and such a small thing, but it still meant a lot. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, Also, just these horses that actually make you work for it. They might not necessarily be or become the greatest racehorses, but making you work for it and become a better horseman for it puts them a little bit up there. Mm. So I started a horse a few years ago. His name was Fancy Liquor. He he won actually some stakes races. He won on the Derby Day that went in the fall during COVID. Mm. And he was a real handful. He gave me some <laughs> pretty good uh, hiccups and may not have been my favorite at the time. But the challenge is fun. And then seeing that he has become what he became is great. So yeah, that's rewarding. gratifying. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, it's cool to know that, you know, you had a significant piece in his career. You know, like maybe if you, you know, if he hadn't been matched up with, you know, like a patient horsewoman maybe he wouldn't be where he is now. That's really cool. Well, Marta, it's been super fun to catch up and get a little bit of insight into this cool life that, you know, you've built for yourself in Kentucky. Uh, Where can people find you, you know, on social media or anything to give you a follow if they want to see what Marta's up to next? Well, I'm on Instagram and Facebook, usually just by my name, Marta.Solhaug. I don't know if I should be spelling that out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> It'll be in the show notes, folks, if you It'll want to find it. <laughs> we'll, we'll put it out there. <laughs> um, yeah. A lot yeah, of mumbling you're... and a lot of trying to keep my ducks in a row here. Pretty much like everything else in my life. Just, um... Yeah, like all of us. So, yeah. W- welcome. You found your people. <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, Marta, thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll look forward to seeing what you get up to next. All right. Thank you. I'm here with Tony from Cashel. You all know it from the ads you hear all the time on this show. But I, we're at the trade show, and this is the p- point of time in the year where we find out what's new coming out. So what's Cashel have new coming out? Oh, we've got a, a great lineup of uh, 32, 34 wool top pads. So t- describe them. Uh, five different colors, real vibrant, bright, sharp-looking pads. What, are the, what makes them different? Uh, well, it's the fill. The, the, the wool felt on the inside is a natural felt, and the fleece on the bottom is a 100% merino. Oh, really? Okay. So these are soft and squishy pads. Well, not real squishy, but soft, and, and they do absorb shock and, and saddle fit. What would they retail for? What are those? 
That's about know? 119. That's the right price. Yeah. Anything else new with Cashel coming out? Oh, we've got uh, more saddle pads coming in the fall, a uh, new strap line coming in the fall. It's uh, a two-tone that looks great with a, a great buckle set on it. There's, we're always in development, so there's so many things, projects in the works. What's still your most popular product? Is it still always the same things year after year? Uh, fly. You've got fly, yeah, fly that's what we all, what's, always it. That's how I knew you in the first place was fly. Fly masks. Yep. Yeah, many years ago, uh, we were primarily fly masks and kind of had some tush cushions and a few odds and ends. Today, we've broadened that offering to saddlebags, uh, strap, head stalls, breast collars, bell boots, um, leg protection, and the, it continues to grow. Is there a place where somebody can go and see all the products? Uh, com will give you a good offering. There you go. Well, thank you, Tony. It's been fun seeing you again. Hey, thank you. Good to see you. Well, Kristen, I'm super excited to bring our next guest on. We have Raymond White Jr. And he is, gosh, where do you even begin? I feel like he's been involved in every part of racing. His father was a famous racehorse trainer. His sister is a famous jockey. They raised horses. He's been in as a jockey agent. But why why am I doing the rundown? I'm just going to bring Raymond on to introduce himself. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Raymond. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me today. Um, I I, uh, I look forward to, to chatting with you too, and uh, and you know telling our telling our stories. So, but yeah, I've been in the, been grew up in horse racing family uh, ever since I was a little kid. That people ask me all the time, when did you you know know about horses? I said I never not knew about horses. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, my dad was a trainer, my mom was an owner, and. Uh, um, we were, Cheryl and my, my sister and I both were riding before we could walk. And, um, yeah, I've been everything in horse racing. You can be except the jockey when I was except the right, uh, yeah, except the jockey and a trainer. I've been an assistant trainer, but, um, when I was the right size to, to be a jockey, I was too young. And when I got to be the right age, I was too big. So, yeah. um, yeah, so, but I've been exercise, gallop horses, like workout, work horses, got to privilege in my life uh if there was a bucket list thing i could have done i got actually got the workhorses next to my father out of the starting gate and uh that was something i'll, I'll never forget in my life so i'm grateful for that them, those moments my dad galloped horses until he was 84 years old at no 84 way. years old he's yeah he still galloped nine to ten horses a day at 84 years old that so, is passion I, yeah. I hope yeah. I can. I just want to be able to get on my horse at that age. That's amazing. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? I tell you, um, I like to believe that I'm uh, that I'm that I have that uh, that gene of my father's. So I'm I'm holding on. I'll see how how we look at eighty four. <laughs> so you know, yeah, but amazing. yeah, it's uh, yeah, absolutely. So that's pretty much. Right. We grew up on a four hundred acre horse farm in Rome, Ohio. And out the middle of the snow belt, um, Ohio, Rome, Ohio is kind of in between Cleveland and Buffalo, New York. So when the snow, when the lake effect snow comes, we get hammered with it out there. So I grew up and grew up in the, in the, in that area and a country boy through and through. So Love um, it. familiar with that yeah. phenomenon. So, yep. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Same here. yeah, absolutely. Same here. Absolutely. So what was it like? having a track trainer as a father because like the way you just describe it sounds so picturesque it's actually quite sounds very romantic in a lot of ways was that always like that or were there days where like man i wish these horses weren't here 
No, I never had a day where I didn't. I loved. I mean, I. It was a way of life. I mean, my mm-hmm. father was a, a, a trainer. He was well respected by everybody. Um, he was legendary around the racetrack, where people said he was the best horseman ever. And uh, and I was very, very proud to be his son and uh, to be to you know to be in that family. So it was. Uh, um, I, my father was a great man, and I. My saying has always been that if I could be a quarter of the man that my father is, I'll be a great man. And I am, I'm still working on that. So, uh, we're not quite there yet. You know, my dad was, uh, didn't have an enemy in the world. Everybody loved him. Everybody, you know, he didn't cuss, didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't take pills, didn't go to doctors, but he ate everything you weren't supposed to eat. Sugar, greasy (laughs) foods, salt, uh, you know, all that stuff. But, it's funny, my but my my son Raymond the Third always says that yeah he could eat all that stuff because he was always on the go. He was always working. Yeah. He was always ripping and running and galloping horses, and he was you know he 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 worked and worked and worked. So we got our Cheryl and I both, my sister and I both got our work ethic from our father. So amazing. So, well, I know yeah. he's spoken so highly in the book, which I know we're about to dive into, but it was I actually felt like. The way you described your dad, your mom too, it's just, it sounded so wholesome and clearly yeah. a very close knit and encouraging yeah, my, family. Yeah. My mom was a breeding expert. She was a breeding expert bloodlines. Um, when it came to breeding our horses, she was the one who chose what studs and, you know, what breeding, the, you know, what, what lines she wanted to do. So she was the, she handled that part of our, our, our racing business. She was uh um, certainly she could, I mean, she was an expert in bloodlines. There was nobody like her. So, oh, yeah. I love that. Well, and also yep. she had an eye for telling the future too. She's a futurist. You mentioned in the book as well. <laughs> and I love the story about the microwave. Yeah. That was great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She was, uh, you know, future and, and technology. That was her thing. And she passed that gene she passed that gene on to me. So, uh, to this day, I'm, you know, I, I'm, uh, you know, I like uh, all the new stuff, the new technology. You, you know, I'm, you know, I got that from my mother. So it was a, uh, we were the second family to have a color TV, and I think I, she got a she had a massage chair. That's literally the truth. She had a massage chair in the early '70s, so when they first came out. So um, if it was new technology. My mom made sure we had it, so we weren't, we never were behind. So tell us a little bit about the book. I know I mentioned it a few times because I'm very eager, but you partnered with Sarah Maslinier to write the book about your sister, Cheryl, called A Jockey yep. and Her Horse. Tell us a little yep. bit about who Cheryl is and what what made her so successful being a jockey and the first Black female jockey in America. Well, yeah, Sarah came to me. Um, we met up. We met. Uh, in 2021, where she contacted me um, because she had purchased a an original copy of Jet Magazine that Cheryl was on the cover of, and she was trying to find Cheryl, and um, but she found out that Cheryl had passed, and um, she made contact with me, and she wanted to write a story in the New York Times, and um, she's a New York Times journalist, and and, and a published author, and um, she wanted to write a story, so I that told her, well, it's good timing because we have a race running in Cheryl's honor here in Youngstown, Ohio. And she said, Hey, I want to get on a plane and come there to meet you and write the story. And she did. And we 
it was an instant connection with us. Um, our family and Sarah connected, and she we consider her family. So um, she was a her self proclaimed Cheryl's fan girl, a fan girl of my sister, and oh. um, and then we get you know what made I mean so she came up with the idea for us to write the jockey and her horse. And so we should make a, a, write a book. We should write a children's book. We should do a documentary. We should do a movie. Um, and all those things are all in the works, actually, the documentary and the movie. But what Cheryl made Cheryl, Cheryl was just, um, she was tough as nails. And, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, she was nine years, almost nine years older than me. And um, one of the things that uh, made her successful was, I, I go back to this word, fearless. She was just fearless and she was fearless in everything she did, you know? So, and that's kind of, we say in racing, one of the things a jockey has to have is heart. Um, if you lose your heart and you're, and you get scared, um, you might as well hang your stirrups up. There's no point in you riding anymore. And, um, Cheryl was just fearless. She, you know, the time that she grew, she came up when she started riding was a time, obviously it was very turbulent in the United States, 1971. And, um, you know, and the time that that was, it was only three years removed from women being had, women had to go to court to earn the right to ride. You know, they were blocked from being built. They weren't allowed to be jockeys. So they literally had to go. Kathy Kuzner took the uh, Maryland racing commission to, to court in uh, 1968 and they won the right to ride. And three years later, Cheryl became not only the you know first black female jockey, but she was also one of that first early group of female jockeys and um she just she just wanted to ride i mean it was kind of natural we'd you know the funny part was my father who was born in 1903 mm-hmm. was um not a fan of her becoming a jockey he didn't think women should ride he didn't think women should be jockeys but I go back to when I say that my father was a great man and I aspire to be, you know, if I could just be almost as good as him, um, he didn't let his bias stand in the way of his daughter's dream. Um, and he helped her, he helped her, you know, achieve her dream, even though he didn't believe that she should be a jockey. He said, all right. And then he finally, then he learned that, Hey, his daughter was a pretty good jockey. And he actually became a champion of female jockeys. Um, later in, a, in his career, uh, and we rode, we had a lot of uh, female jockeys that rode rode for him over the years outside of my sister. So um, she changed. Yeah, she changed his mind. And um, but he didn't stand in a way he could have been a he could have been a, you know, a chauvinistic and, you know, man, no, you're not going to be a jockey or a woman. You shouldn't ride. And, but he didn't do that. So, I, you know, that is that is uh, that's a mark of a, a, a heck of a man. So, Absolutely. Um, but, yeah. but you, she was, she was just fearless. There was a horse that she rode uh, at Pitt Park at the Meadows back in the seventies. And the horse was named Tiger's Tune. He had a habit of bolting on the turn coming around the far turn, coming to the head of the stretch. He had a habit of bolting. Well, Mary Bacon, another female jockey rode him and he bolted and dropped her on the racetrack. She came off him and she hit her head and she was in a coma for a week. And, um, nobody wanted to ride this horse, um, because he, you know, he was basically, he was an outlaw. And, um, my sister was like, I'll ride him. I'm not scared of him. <laughs> and she rode him and won four races in a row on him. 
And, uh, you know, so she was, she had no, she just was fearless. I mean, I go back to that fearless, fearless. That's what she was. So, um, and, uh, and she was good. She was talented. I mean, her, the way she seated a horse and our logo for our uh, nonprofit is actually a picture of her on a horse, working a horse. And it's just, her form is perfect. Like I, I can't even find the words cause I, it, I can relate let to me having, go, I'll talk all night. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm like, I, I can relate to having a parent who doesn't necessarily a- agree with the direction right. that you want to go with your life. And it, it can be really hard. And I think there's a lot of people, whether they're adults or kids today who have gone through right. that and it, it can easily become a barrier from you chasing what you know will make you happy. So the fact that Cheryl had yeah. that tenacity that she knew, like you said it, if she had it in her heart before she even started. It was there. Oh to go. yeah. There's no doubt. Yeah. There's no doubt. And she was so good that, you know, I, I was, a, when I was a jockey day, I tried to get her to come back, back East. I said, you know, if you just come back here, I'll be your agent <laughs> and we'll, we'll own the world. And I couldn't get her to come out of California to come back here. Now my father would r- fly her back every two or three years. He would want to, he'd want to ride her on a couple of our horses one day. Mm-hmm. So he would fly her back to ride You know, like if we had one horse or two horses running on a, on a particular day, he'd fly her in to ride those horses that day and fly. She'd fly back out the same day, like a rock star. And what I would do, I would go around the track and talk to trainers and let them know that my sister was flying it coming into town. So when she would get there, not only she thinks she's coming into town to ride my father's two horses and she'd see she was named and she's on seven or eight races. She's like, wow. how did I get on all these horses? How, why am I riding on all these races? I said, oh, I, I decided to pick up a few mounts for you while you were coming into town. That was my way of trying to show her, you know, Hey, look, I'm telling you, I'm a good agent. I can be your agent. Look at, look at that, you know? And, uh, so all these trainers, when they knew that, and she was a rock star, you know, when these trainers knew that Cheryl White was coming into town, they literally would tell their regular jockeys, look, uh, I'm sorry, but you're not going to ride my horse this day. Cheryl White's coming into town. So I want her on this horse. Wow. So, and she'd come in and yeah, she'd come in and win three or four races and get back on a plane and fly back out to California. And, uh, but she was, she was, and she just, you know, she wasn't into the spotlight. She wasn't into self-promotion, which is kind of why her star faded over the years where people, people didn't hear about her because she didn't brag about herself. You know, the one time she came into town in Cleveland, I, I actually contacted channel five. Uh, they had a show on TV at a morning exchange, which was very popular back then on, on channel five, ABC. And I gave them a heads up that she was coming into town, you know, to see if I could get her to, you know, I didn't say nothing to her about it. <laughs> I let them contact her to see if they would, they could get her to come in for an interview. She turned them down. She wouldn't do it. So I was like, really? You know, so, um, but see what she was, she was very humble. She just wasn't, like I say, she wasn't in the self-promotion. And um, that's why people ask me all the time. They're like, How, why do you think that, you know, nobody's heard of her? Why do you think? Because she was at one point when she first started riding, she was a household name all over the country. Yeah. Everybody knew who Cheryl White was. I mean, literally, she was a, a household name. She was on a cover of Jet Magazine. She was on What's My Line. You know, she was in newspaper. Because back then, we only got you know, we got our news through three TV stations, newspapers, magazines, and radio. We didn't have, you know, so she was the the 1970s version of viral. 
um, through those media, those uh, media outlets. And everybody knew who she was. If I, you know, when I was a kid, I, I was in the grandstands at uh, Pitt Park at the Meadows one year, uh, 1972. And uh, I, for some reason, I found out Dave Cash, the second baseman for the Pittsburgh Pirates, was in the stands. And at the time, I was 10 years old. And I found him. I went up to him. And I said, hi, I'm Raymond White. My sister is Cheryl White. She's, of course, she was riding a few races that night. It was night racing then. And he was like, like blown away. He was like, oh my God, Cheryl White's your, you know, your sister. He was, you know, it was like I was telling him that my sister was the queen of England. <laughs> and uh, I invited him to the winner's circle. Hey, if she wins a race, will you come down to the winner's circle with me and get the win picture? He says, absolutely. I always thought that win picture, that horse that she won on that night, I always thought it was one of my father's horses. I look at that win picture now with Dave Cash in it, and he was part of the World Series Pittsburgh Pirates, and and me and Dave Cash are in his win picture, and I have no clue whose horse that was. My sister was riding the horse. I don't know who the trainer was, the owner. I just barged into their win picture with Dave Cash with me, and uh, the comical thing that I think of is that here Dave Cash is in a win picture with my sister. My sister had no idea who he was. But he knew who she was, you know. Yeah, he's a famous baseball player, but she don't know him, you know. But he knew who she was. So that's funny. That's um, proof, though. If you yeah. walk anywhere with that attitude, that they'll just let you do whatever you want, right? Mm-hmm. Just, oh like, yeah, in, absolutely. Like- <laughs> I walked in. I took Dave Cash, and I walked in, and I'm standing in front of everybody, like it's my horse. You know, so I was just so proud that I brought Dave Cash into this win. You know, that was the, you know, that's the equivalent of bringing in one of these who name a a, play, a major league player now. He was that popular back then, you know, so. It's funny. I hope um, the connections yeah, yeah. still have that picture and they're like, man, we don't know how this happened, but this picture's awesome, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I I have that picture. I'm so proud of that picture. It's like I said, when I finally <laughs> dug it up and found it, I was like, who the heck are these people? I was, uh, I, if you, if before I saw that picture here in the last year or so, you would have bet me, I would have bet you anything that it was my father's, that that was my father's horse that Cheryl rode that night. And it wasn't. That's so, funny. But yeah. Yeah. So Raymond, you know, now you're, you know, you're saying like you used to get your news through like a news network. And now it seems like we really get our news like through the news app on your phone or social media. So oh, yeah. do you think yeah. that, you know, maybe the, like media trajectory of Cheryl's career might've been different if this story was happening right now. You know, like, I feel like the the climate is just so different now that it was like, how do you think this story might resonate differently? uh, You know, it's hard to say. I mean, we've made so many advances since, you know, over 50 years ago. Um, You know, I mean, you know, because it was a big deal back then first black female jockey. And what really made her famous was that there was a six month lead up to her riding her first race. Mm, right. Media outlets and newspapers were trumpeting um, black girls going for her jockey's license. Girl, high school student looking to be the first black female jockey. So there was all this buildup to before she rode her first race or even because her first race she rode was really a test to see if she was competent to be a jockey. The stewards 
they're judging her in a race and you know, all that. But, um, she had all this buildup so that the day that she did ride her first race, Thistledown racetrack in Ohio, here in Cleveland, Ohio, it looked like Derby day. I mean, it was packed. There were, everybody came out to see Cheryl white ride her first race. It was, I mean, it was just stunning how many people were there. And, um, the crowd was just, I mean, it was amazing. You couldn't even see like in the paddock where they saddle the horse for the race and, you know, the horses come in the paddock and the, mm-hmm. then the, the, the jockeys come out and shoot. You couldn't even see the, my dad, the horse, Cheryl, they were six, seven deep reporters all around the, the, the media was just everywhere. I mean, the media was everywhere. The stands were packed. Like it was Ohio Derby day. And, um, it was so, so in the post parade, the horses come out of the paddock and they, they go in front of the stands and they turn and they name each horse and jockey as they're going The one horse, you know, such and such is up. And then the two horse, such and such is up. Well, Cheryl had, when they called her name and her horse, the crowd erupted and it roared so loud that one of the horses reared up and flipped over and had to be scratched from the race. It scared them. So that's, uh, um, that was just, yeah. So that was just an amazing, an amazing time. Had she rode her first race and let's say there had been no media build up to her first race. She just, you know, in quiet and secret worked out and then rode her first race. And nobody would know. You know, then she probably wouldn't have had as much, you know, she probably would have had as much fanfare to begin with. I mean, maybe afterwards, but, um, yeah, but the buildup before she rode her first race was tremendous. I mean, there were articles coming out every, every week, you know, like they were monitoring her. And, um, you know, so it was, my father did, uh, insist that she graduate. Um, you know, we weren't going to let you become a jockey and you didn't graduate. You didn't go to school not to, to drop out and be a jockey. So that was, uh, you know, that was a rule, but she, you know, she could have been a math teacher or uh, algebra. Actually, she had a, a full ride scholarship to Bowling Green, um, for, for, uh, academics, uh, scholarships. So she was really, really smart. And, um, she was an algebra expert. I mean, she was real good. So, but yeah, she, uh, I mean, and she kind of left the spotlight and went out West and kind of, uh, you know, she found a niche out there and she rode all disciplines. She rode thoroughbreds, Appaloosas and quarter horses out there for years. And, and she had a quote one time that she liked being a little fish in a big pond. So our big fish in a little pond, excuse me. And that's what she was out there. But she later in her later years, when she was back here and we were talking, she's like, I, she said, I should have listened to you and I should have came back and let you take my, what they call it, taking your book as a jockey. When you've got a jockey, you're a jockey's agent, you have the jockey's book. And, uh, I said, well, you know, I said, it's all right. You, you, you did well. You know? So she's like, I say, she was just, and she was, she was an amazing talent. I mean, she really was above everything else being the first black female jockey and all of that. She was an amazing talent who I would put up against any top jockey ever. So uh, in their prime, I would put my sister, I wouldn't hesitate to put my sister on a horse over Willie Shoemaker, Lafitte Pink Eye, Eddie, you know, you can go down the list, all these Hall of Fame jockeys, she could ride with any of them. Oh, I got chills. That's so cool. (laughs) I mean, just the the love and admiration you have for her, your father. Uh, I'm so excited that we're able to feature the story on our show as well. 
And I, you know, we always are talking about the horses too. And I think the horse that kind of sparked this for her is also critical to the story. So please, if you don't mind sharing us a little bit about Jedalora and what made him special to Cheryl. Jedalora was a, uh, a favorite horse of mine and my sister's. Um, you know, my father used to rotate our horses in and out, you know, they'd send them to the farm for two, three months to rest and get some R and R before they go back into training. And, and Jed Alera was just the most gentle, best. He was just a, he was such a cool horse. I mean, to have him immortalized and for him to be the first horse that she, she won her first race on, that was just amazing. And to have him immortalized, um, in this story, in the book, he was just, I mean, I could have put. You know, I have a six-year-old grandson. I guard. I have an eight-year-old granddaughter. I could have put them on. I could put them on Jetalera. Uh, my granddaughter will be eight here shortly, and uh, I could have put them on him. He was just that gentle and to be a racehorse, and just uh, allow you know kids to ride him, and um, you know. But so he was. He was my favorite horse growing up, and he was Cheryl's favorite horse growing up, and he actually ended up being the. Uh, I couldn't have picked a better horse for her to have a, a part of history to be uh, her winner first race on. And that win picture of Jed Alera, I didn't realize it now, but to me, it's become iconic. Um, it's a black and white photo. I was nine years old. I was at the other end of the grandstand playing or whatever I was doing as a nine-year-old. When the race was running, of course, I knew the race was running. I saw them coming around the far turn. And I'm all the way at the other end. Far, I'm at the farthest point away from the winner's circle. And when they were coming around the far turn around the head of the stretch, I knew she was going to win. I was like, oh, God, she's going to win the race. So I started running towards the winner's circle. Well, they had the Jetto in the, we called him Jetto. They had him in the winner's circle. And I ran into the winner's circle. And the photographer did not let me get set for the picture. So he snapped the picture with me in full stride and my arm up in the air running and looking up at my sister. I'm looking at Cheryl and she is sitting there with a blank look on her face. It's the only one picture that she didn't smile at. She's just got this blank look on her face cause she's in shock that she won. And, um, and I'm looking, so it, to me, that picture just says so much, you know, there's this nine year old brother who's looking up at his sister in admiration. And here's a sister in shock that she won her first race. She's not even smiling. So it's, uh, I look at that picture fondly now. I really do. So I was, I was kind of mad back then that he didn't let me get set, you know what I mean? For, to take a picture. But, uh, now, now I'm kind of glad he did what he did. So yeah, it was a, it's a really cool picture. It's also very, very cool horse. I don't know how many people would feel comfortable putting up a a small child on a horse like that. And, you know, reading the book, (laughs) I had chills hearing the first time Cheryl rode Jedalora or Jedalera. And Uh uh, I know it was unintentional. I don't want to give any spoilers away, but I'm just going to say it was an accident. And the the way it was written, it just it just shows the bond that was coming. It was a great foreshadowing of their future yeah. together. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I'll tell you what, Sarah, my co-author is absolutely amazing and I, I can't give her enough credit. Um, you know, we work together on this, uh, the details and everything, but 
you know, you know, obviously both of us, it took both of us to make this happen, but, um, she's family and, um, you know, she is, uh, I tell her all the time, your name is now Sarah Maslinier White. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> you have four names now. And, um, but she is, uh, you know, we worked together on this book and, you know, really made it happen as far as the, uh, getting things right and doing the, getting the details down. And, you know, so she's, and she's an amazing, she's an amazing writer. You know, she was already a published author with, uh, Simon and Schuster with, uh, a book called horse crazy. Her book called horse crazy is absolutely amazing. And, um, so yeah, so I'm blessed to have her. We're blessed to have her in our life and in our world. And, um, you know, she was actually, she actually helped facilitate the, uh, you know, the briar made a, a model of Cheryl I and saw Jenna that. Yeah. And yeah. It, it turned out beautiful yeah. too. And I have to say like yeah. at first I learning about Cheryl, you know, it was easy for me to find photos and dig up some history on her before we met today, but I didn't look up a ton on Jetta Lara and I was like, Oh, it's a chestnut, which Kristen and I both have chestnut horses. We have a fondness. I saw that. I saw that. <laughs> um, I saw that. So just that little extra spark of like, not to use my own name, but sure. a little extra spark of joy in there of, Oh yeah. Oh, it's a chestnut horse. Of course it has yes, to be. Yeah. They're magical. <laughs> joy just sent me the picture. <laughs> yeah, oh, this yeah, picture is that. awesome. Yeah. Like yeah, Joy just sent me this picture. What I love about this too, is all the people like right here hanging over the rail at the winner's circle watching too. Mm-hmm. Like there's so yeah. much going oh, on yeah. in this picture. Like she very yeah. clearly people were here to watch her. This yeah. Awesome. Oh yeah. She was a, she was a, I mean, she was, like I say, when I say she was a household name, when I was a kid, I could go anywhere and go, yeah, Cheryl White's my, my sister. There was no way. Cheryl White's your sister. Everybody knew who Cheryl White was. It was just, uh, it was stunning. Um, you know, so yeah, we're, you know, we're very proud to, to have her, uh, her and Jetto, uh, immortalized in, as a briar set. Um, and we really worked hard on getting the, the, the rider doll of Cheryl perfected. I mean, they, they, they made a model of her, they made it, you know, it's got, you know, we really worked hard on that. So they, they, they got the details down really, really well. And, um, we're actually going to Briarfest again this year. Um, mm-hmm. they, they want us to come out again to Briarfest. And, uh, the last year we went, we met people and talked to people. We didn't, the doll, the, the box set wasn't out yet. So it should be very interesting to go there this year with the box set available. So my arm will probably get really tired. We we have a lot of fun <laughs> at these events, you know. So, um, but yeah, we're we're trying to make a difference in the world. With we're trying to make sure that Cheryl is uh, remembered, and um, you know, just to, to make a difference in helping you know maybe kids and families, and um, you know that's kind of the next phase of everything here. So that's kind of where we're heading. So that to I make a difference it. in the world. Yeah. I love it. Well, I know we're coming close to time, but I have two questions I'd love to end on. So one okay. is if you were to give any advice to any person of color interested in a career in horses, whether it's racing or something else, what would it be? Because I can say growing up, um, there is a perception of who horses are for. I think mm-hmm. we're moving away from that in in current days, which is great to see. But we've right. always said it with every industry. It's it's a lot easier to want to be involved when you can see someone like you there. So um, Absolutely. What, what advice would you recommend to them? 
I mean, the biggest advice I can have is just be persistent. You know, be persistent and, you know, don't give up. I mean, if you really want to be involved with horses or, you know, there are plenty of places to, to, you know, whether it's a farm, a horse farm or a racetrack, there are plenty of people that are always going to need help with their horses. And you will find somebody who will give you a chance. Um, You know, you will find, you know, you may have to, knock on enough doors and make enough phone calls and, you know, barge in at enough farms or, you know, a lot of times at racetracks, they'll let you on the backside though. They'll let you come in and look for a job. Um, you know, so if somebody wants to really get involved in horse racing, they, you know, you got to be persistent. You, you know, you may run into that person, the first, first or second person you talk to, and it might take you to run it. You may have to talk to 20 or 30 people before you get a break. Um, but one thing about racing and horses in, in general, if you have the, the knowledge of working with horses and, and it's a career and it's a job that you can go anywhere, you can travel the world with horses. You can travel the country with horses. I mean, right now, if I, you know, I, that's one of the things that I always appreciated about horse racing. I could go anywhere. I've gone everywhere. I went to Miami. I go to Hialeah, gallop horses for the winter, come back. You know, if I wanted to go to California and gallop horses and work with horses out there, anywhere there's horses, you can, you have a job. So, um, you know, but if you're, if you're passionate about something and, and, and put your nose to the ground, you know, just kind of just make sure that you want it. If you want it, it's, it's doable. So, um, you know, that's kind of one of the things that we're trying to do with the, with the new foundation that we're starting. You know, we really want to, um, you know, the nonprofit that we're starting and, um, we want to try and get the message out and to help, you know, youth and, and children and you know, underprivileged and just uh, kids and stuff that get an opportunity to, 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 to see themselves that they can do this, that they can be involved with horses. So, um, we want, we're trying to make a difference with that, with the Cheryl White project. So, um, perfect intro to it. Cause that was yeah. going to be my question to wrap was. Tell us a little bit about the Cheryl White Project. (laughs) No, the Cheryl White Project. (laughs) The Cheryl White Project dot com. Um, It's the Cheryl White Project dot com. It is everything about Cheryl White, and we're constantly putting new new content up there. Um, A lot of the travels that we did last year are up there, but it's um, the Cheryl White Project is our nonprofit, um, which will officially be my son handles that that part of it. Um, it's a 501, I guess it was a 3C or C3. We are going to be, a, a, you know, we're going to, that'll be official here in a couple of weeks. But we are, a, uh, we're trying to make a, uh, make a difference to create a scholarship foundation. And, you know, we have a, uh, you know, we're, we've been taking kind of donations on a, a GoFundMe out there. And, and we're just trying to get this foundation up and running where we're, where we can make a difference and, you know, help, help underprivileged kids and, to rescue horses. Um, we have a farm partner here in uh, Galleon, Ohio, uh, the Boucher Farm, which is where we do all of our filming for different, you know, news outlets that want to do stories about my sister. Um, we're they're, they're they're our partner as far as when we start, you know, doing getting into the horse rescue and things like that. So, but we're just kind of, you know, we're trying to make sure that that we make a a, a difference with Cheryl. We don't want to just, hey, here's a book and a story and then we just fade away we want to we, we're, we're here we're not going anywhere and we want to make a difference and help people and their families and kids find a career in, ho- in racing and find their voice in racing or in horses period 
and just try to make a difference in this world, do something good, you know? So that's, that's kind of, and we want that to be a tad, you know, like Cheryl, her, her, we've got several races around the country right now that are Cheryl white Memorial races. Um, you know, we have a racetrack where she rode her first race here in Cleveland. Uh, we think there should be a statue for of her there permanently. So we're trying to make sure that Cheryl white is never forgotten again. And that's really that that's going back to you saying that you were able to easily find things, pictures of Cheryl. Mm-hmm. That wasn't, that wasn't the case four years ago. Um, you would Google Cheryl. You there's, that's just all that content that we've loaded over these last few years. That's why now it's easy to find information on her. There was a lot of misinformation out there five, five, six years ago. Um, you know, you Google Cheryl white and some other picture or some other, somebody else would come up. And they said that was Cheryl White, and it was, you know. So, um, so we really, uh, but yeah, the CherylWhiteProject.com. You go there and take a look. All the, the videos are on there from some of the interviews we've done with uh, Good Morning America, um, Robin Roberts, who is wonderful, just a, a real warm, genuine person. And um, you know, so we're like I say, we're gonna we're gonna make a difference and and keep on uh, keeping on. And and certainly, you're welcome to anybody's welcome to message us there. We're very good at getting back to people. You're not going to send us a message and don't hear from anybody. So if you do, we we would definitely contact you. Well, thank you for sharing your sister's story with us and just the work that you're doing too. I think it's a critically important story of racing history. And every every time one of these types of stories come our way, I, I love the fact that we can share that feature with our listeners. So Absolutely. For everyone listening, check out the CherylWhiteProject.com. Make sure you get a copy of The Jockey and Her Horse. It is a great read. It is a page turner. I read it myself. And Raymond, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having having me on here and allowing me to uh, share my sister's story and our family story. And uh, we appreciate you all very much. Well, Kristen, it's another year another makeover, but I feel like there's some other things happening at the Retired Racehorse Project. Can you fill us in? Yeah, we always are striving to be more than the makeover, right? Because I mean, the makeover is awesome, but there's also so many more areas where we can be doing good work. So uh, we are really excited. In February, we are hosting Aftercare Industry Month, which is presented by Thoroughbred Education and Research Foundation. So Big thanks to them for a grant that made this possible. Um, So we, rather than trying to host like a big in-person shindig, we are making this a virtual event. Um, So if you have any level of professional interest in aftercare on any side, whether you're a nonprofit or a quote-unquote for-profit or you're just someone who really wants to learn more and see if maybe there's a career in aftercare for you, you definitely want to get involved with Aftercare Industry Month. So in February, we are going to have uh, a webinar every week. They're all actually going to be on Tuesday evenings. Um, And they're going to cover a bunch of aftercare topics that are relevant both to the business side of it and then to the managing horse side of it. You can find more information about that at our website at thrrp.org under the education menu. Uh, There's a very small fee to enroll. um, And then, of course, the recordings will be available to you after as well. So you can either sign up for specific sessions that you're interested in, or you can just get one month-long pass that gives you access to all four. Um, So we are covering making aftercare your full-time job. We are covering how does your contract hold up? So if you are working in aftercare and you want to bring your contract for a lawyer to dissect on camera, you are welcome to do that. Uh, We also have placing difficult horses because we all know that not every horse is just going to fly right out the door. 
Um, and then we also have a session on networking with other aftercare organizations. So topics that are really relevant to anyone with a professional interest, you know, whether that means you're just someone who works for the farm and helps, you know, find new homes for your horses after racing, or, you know, you're like a full-timer setting up your own nonprofit or making a go of this professionally. This is set up for you. So check out Aftercare Industry Month at the RRP.org. This educational series on barn building, we hope answers some questions you have about building your next dream barn. Joining us for this series is Dennis Lee, Equestrian Product Line Manager at Morton Buildings. And today, Glenn talks with him about design considerations to help ensure you get the barn you want for now and into the future. Welcome to Barn Building 101, brought to you by Morton Buildings at mortonbuildings.com. Glenn here, founder of the Horse Radio Network and host of Horses in the Morning. We started a couple educational series last year that were a huge hit with uh, with you guys. And one of them was on horse insurance and the other one on trailers and trailer safety. And they proved very popular and educational. So we asked what else you wanted to hear about. And building a barn was high on the list. I know that's something that Jennifer and I are probably going to be doing very soon, too. So this is timely. Joining us for this series is Dennis Lee, Equestrian Product Line Manager at Morton Buildings. And this uh, part one of three, we're going to discuss design considerations to help you ensure you get the barn you want for now and into the future. Dennis, we've all heard of Morton Buildings, but tell us a little bit about the company. Sure. Thanks, Clint. Um, so Morton Buildings was founded in 1903 as the uh, interlocking fence company. We started out in the, the mail order woven wire business, basically, and over the years transitioned from the fencing component business to building packages and then eventually evolved into uh, turnkey erected building shells. We are the the nation's leader in the post-frame building industry. We design, manufacture, deliver, and erect our own uh, building product. Well, Dennis, one of the things that we're looking at at our property now, and we have five acres, uh, brand new, you know, barren land, is where do you put the barn? And, you know, where do you, how do you figure out what's the best place to plop it? So let's talk about that first. Yeah, so that's that's a great question. And, uh, you know, site prep and site selection uh, is, is probably one of the most important uh, things to consider when building a new barn. A lot of the uh, just nightmare stories that I see and hear from, um, you know, customers building barns were, were poorly selected or poorly prepped sites. So we all know in the wintertime, horses like to like to create a lot of mud and, and nobody likes dealing with muddy, wet, slippery, uh, you know, which creates a, an unsafe environment. So drainage is number one, um, you know, a properly graded drained, drained site. We want, uh, we like to see a site that has a minimum of a 1% slope away from the building for probably 10 to 15 feet uh, without it being a major, you know, steep incline, you know, so we don't want a 45 degree angle climb into the building. You know, site prep is something that we highly recommend you uh, enlist the help of a professional you know, go ahead and flag your site out and shoot some elevations and, uh, you know, and determine what sort of grading is required prior to the building. A major mistake that we see a lot of owners make is to just build the building and then try and address the site and the drainage and the grading after the building is built, which is uh, never delivers a good result. Uh, the other thing we want to consider is zoning, uh, permitting, 
you know, what sort of plan requirements your local county or township may have, things like setbacks or maximum footprint requirements. So, again, another good opportunity to enlist the, the help of a professional that has you know, experience in your area. And you, know, you can always start with a phone call to your local zoning or uh, building code office and ask them, you know, what portions of your barn will require a permit and what their requirements are going to be up front. Uh, this is not a case where you're better to ask forgiveness than permission. So a phone call to the county or township ahead of time will, uh, will save you a lot of headache. And if you're not pouring concrete for this thing, uh, what do you recommend for, for the base? So a good firm uh, clay or limestone base, you know, you don't, you don't want um, to have mud issues as you go along. So a good firm base, you want to remove topsoil and organic material and, and place that somewhere else in the facility and just make sure you have a good firm base uh, with good drainage around the building that's, that's not so steep you can't get into it, you know, it's, Think about your access. Uh, how are you going to get to and from the building with loads of hay, loads of bedding? Uh, how is your farrier going to get to the building? Uh, if you have an emergency, are you going to be able to get to the building with a you know veterinarian vehicle in the dark in the wintertime and that type of thing? And also your big horse trailer. How are you Absolutely. maneuvering it around? You know, which getting getting in, getting turned around, yeah. getting backed up to. You know, these are these are all things we highly recommend. Uh, make an investment in some survey flags and a measuring tape and just go out there and stick some flags on the ground and get a good visual representation of what your building is going to look like uh, on your site. Very good. Well, let's talk about now that you've determined where you're going to put it, you got to determine how big it's going to be, right? And how many stalls you're going to have and tack room and washroom and all of that stuff. So uh, let's start there. How do you determine size? Yeah, so number one complaint, when we go back and interview a uh, horse, customers or, uh, you know, equine facility customers after the fact, I didn't build it big enough. <laughs> you know, we, we built a barn for my wife and my daughter to have a horse. Well, now, you know, now horses seem to <laughs> yes, you know, horses, they're herd animals, right? So we end up with a lot more than we thought we were going to, or the husband's decided he's going to get into trail riding also. So number one complaint, I didn't build it big enough. Uh, so if, if you plan to build a building for three horses, we highly recommend that you build a building large enough to accommodate four to six stalls. You know, that doesn't mean that you have to actually complete the remaining stalls, but having space in that building to add those stalls at a later date uh, is very important. Your buildings are not getting less expensive over time, so there is no better time than now to build a building that is the size that you may need for your future uh, needs. The other thing that we see, um, we'll have clients come to us and say, I need a four stall barn. Well, you know, the, the number of stalls is, is one of the, it's obviously an important consideration, but it's not all there is in a barn, right? So horses require a lot of stuff. So we want to make sure and not underestimate our storage needs. So uh, you upsize your tack room. We love to see a tack and feed room as separate rooms so that you're not uh, you know, enticing rodents to be in the same room as your uh, tack. Uh, ancillary storage. So where are your wintertime blankets, uh, your paraphernalia you take to horse shows with you, rubber tubs, spare feed buckets, pitchforks, wheelbarrows. You know, there's just a lot of stuff in stall barns and we want to make sure that we have good safe, functional storage for all those items. One of the things that we've talked about in the past on, on a number of the shows, that's something that 
if you're buying a current place that's had an older barn that you have a problem with and don't think about when you buy it is ventilation. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so what do you guys do in, in, when it comes to ventilation? What do you recommend? So horses, my personal horses, uh, consume and then subsequently give off 10 to 20 gallons of water a day. That is going to be in the, in the form of urination or perspiration. So that has to go somewhere. It's going to go initially into your bedding and then into the atmosphere of your building. So ventilation is absolutely key in your stall barns. Uh, we use a combination of things. Uh, you're better off to overventilate than underventilate and have a air quality problem. So we use, you know, obviously windows and doors, but uh, it's also important to have ventilated overhangs. Our minimum overhang is going to be 12 inches. Uh, we also offer two, three, and four foot ventilated overhangs, as well as a combination of ventilated ridge caps and powered cupolas. So a, a functional cupola with a fan in it. And we will typically put those fans on uh, either a thermostat or a humidistat. So a humidistat being the fan will cut, cut itself on uh, when the humidity in the barn reaches a certain level. So, you know, a part of ventilation goes back to uh, st- your stalls and the setup of your barn, right? H- how mm. it's set up and how much access that you have to air to the outside, how enclosed the barn is. Um, so that that also goes back to stall size, something that we didn't touch upon. Do you, re- is there a recommended stall size? Do you find people want to under, want to make them too small? Is it 10 by 10, 12 by 12, you know, 14 by 14? Yeah, 10 by 10 is the minimum stall size we offer. Uh, honestly, we we build a very small amount of 10 by 10 stalls every year. 12 by 12 is going to be our uh, most common size. We'll see people on occasion require a 10 by 10 stall. So they have a mini or they have Arabians or they have a smaller sized horse and they're just trying to save a few dollars by undersizing those stalls. We highly recommend against that for several reasons. For one, it is... Is horse safety. So, you know, a smaller a smaller size stall, a horse is much more likely to get cast in, mm. which is a safety issue for the horse and for the uh, handler. Uh, the other consideration is resale. So, if th- this building is likely going to outlive most all of us. So, these buildings, for the most part, have life beyond the initial owner. What we don't want to see you do is build a stall barn with many and Arabian sized stalls uh, that then causes you a resale issue, you know, if you're in a, a quarter horse or a warm blood or a draft type of market down the road. Uh, so the other thing to c- take into consideration and that uh, we're having to look at, too, is lighting and electrical and utilities in general, water, the mm-hmm. whole thing. And I think this is another area that people tend to underestimate. I could be wrong, but you tend to build it and there's never enough light. Uh, it, it never just enough, seems never that enough light. <laughs> yeah. So I was, you know, in, in the early years of building our farm, I was guilty of that as well. Right. You just want to get the barn built, get the horses in before winter and you deal with the rest of it later. We went for a year with no lights in our barn and that was just absolutely miserable. You know, one, one thing that's different, um, between a, an equestrian facility and a farm shop or storage building, you're going to be in this stall barn every day usually multiple times a day. And in my case, it's going to be before daylight 
and after dark, especially once the time changes. So lighting is absolutely key. You know, uh, what we love to do in, um, in grooming stables and wash stalls is we'll run two lights parallel to the horse's body. Your farrier and your veterinarian will love you if there's not huge shadows under the horse. Uh, don't forget exterior lighting. So, of course, we want to have lights in the stalls. Uh, we like to have shedding lights for show horses or lights to help sync up broodmares. Uh, again, the lights in the wash and tack stalls for farriers and grooming, but also exterior lights. And not just your decorative gooseneck light over the barn end door, but some good projection floodlights on the corners you know when when you have a horse run by the window in the middle of the night and you think somebody's loose in the barnyard you're really going to appreciate having plenty of light on that barn to help you uh you know help get everything together you know water is another issue a lot of people use automatic waters now obviously we had a, the last boarding stable where you're at they did something that i've never seen it was the dumbest thing i've ever seen they actually had water run to each stall and you could you could hand fill from they had a little hose basically in each stall mm-hmm. and you could hand fill but but they put the valve on the inside of the stall. Well, what's the first thing my hackney pony did is turn oh, yeah. that water on. <laughs> so. <laughs> we we see a lot of customers that um, like to try and, and DIY individual uh, spigots to individual stalls, and they'll run you know PVC yep, or PEX that's piping that's yep. that's exposed to the horses. And uh, there there's there just is no secret code for running water to individual stalls other than a high quality automatic water uh, we use and recommend Nelson heated automatic waters or a good old fashioned frost free uh, yard hydrant installed in the barn aisle itself. I I cringe every time I see the DIY individual waters run to a stall because they're either going to freeze and bust and flood a stall or you're going to have an inquisitive hackney pony chewing them <laughs> off the wall and causing problems. That is so true. All right. The final thing we'll talk about in this segment, and we have a couple more segments that we'll be doing over the next few weeks, is floors. You know, uh, we talked about, we use lime rock down here. You talk about limestone. They call it lime rock here in Florida. Mm-hmm. But it's basically... Uh, crushed up limestone that you can compact really tight. Um, But on top of that, you have to put your rubber mats. So talk to us about rubber mats. We see them for sale a lot now around here, but boy, the thickness and quality appears to be lacking in some of them. Yeah, not all mats are created equal. And if you ever grab a hold of a really high quality rubber mat, you'll you'll see that instantaneously. So uh, like you were saying, your base, your base in your stalls is everything. So that can be referred to in different manners across the country. So you can have ag lime, crushed limestone, uh, stone screenings pit gravel, what you know, in your stalls, you want a, a, a fine granular, well compacted, very level, stable surface. Uh, and that really needs to be well compacted and, and very level. And then a high quality rubber mat. So we use uh, the highest quality rubber mat that we've been able to source. The the best thing about the mats that we use are they come in a larger format. So for a 12 by 12 stall, you can have two six by 12 mats interlocked with each other, uh, reducing the number of joints in the mat. We all know what it's like to have that perfectly sifted pitchfork full of manure and hit a uh, curled up joint in a stall mat and it all goes flying. Um, but your, your low cost, low quality mats, like you'll see at some of the local farm supplies, if you can grab that mat and really bend it over easily 
or if it cuts super easy with a utility knife, it's just not going to give you the service life that a super dense, uh, heavy, high-quality mat will. So you're looking for at least a, ha- a half uh Half inch thick, or yeah, or? Ha- half or five eighths is the most common. Okay. Do you mm-hmm. recommend them in the aisles too, or do you guys not? We, we, that no, we do. Thing? We yeah. we use quite a few stall mats in the aisles. Now in the aisles, uh, what we like to see is a uh, an in, obviously an interlocking mat, so they don't walk, they don't end right. up moving you down the aisle. Another great option there is pavers. So we do quite a few stall barns with uh, either the glue down or lay down interlocking style of paver. The paver makes a very nice, quiet, uh, safe, you know, high traction type of surface. They can be a little bit of a bear to keep clean. So you're going to want a, a leaf blower or a vacuum or something to keep those pavers clean. Well, as I said, this is a several part series. So we're going to get into much more in the future segments that we do. Thanks, Dennis, for joining us. We really appreciate it. And, you know, whether you're doing stalls or stall barns or riding arenas, whatever it is, Morton has a building for you. They're professionally built for your needs. They really do take time to find out what you want. I've had a lot of friends that do Morton buildings. And they, they take time to find out exactly what you want what your budget is, and then they design a building just for you. So right now you can save through February on new buildings during their building value days. And to learn more, visit mortonbuildings.com slash project slash the question. You don't have to remember that. We'll put it in the show notes right here. Or you can give them a call at 800-447-7436. That's mortonbuildings.com. Thanks, Dennis. Well, it is that time of the show where we bring back new vocations to bring us a adoptable horse and a training tip. And today we have Leandra Cooper joining us. Welcome back, Leandra. Well, thank you for having me. And isn't it nice to be here in 2024 with you all? I know. We, we I made it. Tech- <laughs> we did make it. Technically, we had an episode release that we pre-recorded in December. But this is like the first time hmm. the gang's all back for the new year. Yeah, we it's weren't really there nice. yet. <laughs> yeah, we we now have validation that we made it. Yeah, yeah. We were there like of us as a gang. Keep calling us <laughs> right? the gang. I like that. Yeah, the gang, <laughs> gang's all back. Makes me really think of it's always sunny in Philadelphia, though. When I say that, absolutely. Um, <laughs> but I know before we left off, and we'll have to jog all of our memories here for our training tip. We were bringing out to go into your flying lead change with your thoroughbred. And last we spoke, we really talked about the foundations and ensuring, you know, they can move off the leg, they can break, they can walk, trot, canter okay, be nice and supple. But what about that phase two? We've, we've got the ABC layer. What's next? Well, once you have the building blocks or the those ABCs that you can start building from so working on words and then sentences and all those things that build on top of having that foundation you can work on those smoother transitions and have that understanding and connection and that level of comprehension that happens when they understand the asks so it's just kind of throwing darts blind before you do that you might get the response you want, but we really, in this ideal scenario, want to make the learning progressive and such that you can minimize the confusion and the miscommunication. So once we have the 
responsiveness to pressure and being able to do nice transitions and laterals. What we hope for then is that there is the appropriate fitness and muscling to be able to have a canter that isn't rushed, the transitions that aren't rushed, which is going to translate into being able to swap leads that's not just rushed because horses, especially those coming off the track, have to change leads. They would fatigue otherwise, and they're certainly not breaking to the trot in a race to change their leads. So they know that. They know that at the gallop. They know that at speed. They have to be able to do that. And furthermore, you can see horses change leads in turnout. Like It's not that they can't do it. It's really just the human component. So what we're doing is we're building that language up. And once we have that, what ideally happens in that flying lead change is a rocking back onto the haunches that allows the shoulder to lift because you're going to start in that lead change generally from moving that opposite, the new lead forelimb, lifting that shoulder and being able to lead and then transition in the back as well. But that requires freeing up that shoulder and being able to have that lift, which only happens when you don't have so much weight and pressure on the forelimbs, which is normal. About 60% of their weight is on those forelimbs. So it's only in the rocking back lifting, swapping to the other lead that we're going to have those beautiful, nice fluid transitions. So that's why we want to build that foundation. That's why, you know, being able to, like, I, I even like to incorporate in the transitions, things like asking for a step of backup and then thinking about like rocketing into the trot, you know, instead of the like lazy, heavy trot transitions. And then same thing with like, when you stop, back up, ask for the canter transitions. It's that same sort of motion. So again, that's why we go to those foundational pieces because that's where you're going to be able to perfect the mechanics and then be able to put them together with the cues, which also has to happen with the responsiveness. So in our ideal scenario, we maybe go across the diagonal and you're in a figure eight and you're able to shift your hips just slightly just as the tip of your pelvis even and being able to swing your leg back ask for that new lead and there it happens but in it to be able to make that really happen in the practice that builds up to that we need to be able to do the rock back and the lift of the shoulder so there are a couple of different things that need to happen one, you as a rider need to have clear messaging. So hopefully as you've built up those foundation pieces, you've been able to do that and not just left everything up to your horse. Um, you know, sometimes there is a tendency to do that, to just critique the horse and them not doing something, but not really looking and saying, hey, am I actually tipping my shoulder? Is my pelvis actually, you know, um, rolled to to point almost downward, not literally downward, but it's the way that we shift and use our own weight and our own mechanics that makes things either clear messaging and easier for the horse or vice versa. So one of the things that I will do for even just the young horses, if we're trying to get a video and can't necessarily put the time that goes into the really beautiful canter transitions and doing the finely changes a lot of times you can kind of make that happen in the quick and dirty by this was an old trick that one of my mentors who is like an old school cowboy in california he would 
be like, if you point the horse across the ring at the fence and you're cantering and then you shift your weight, right. As you're getting towards the fence and change direction, <laughs> you know, the horse has this option. That's basically like you go into the fence or you change your lead because it's a very quick and rapid weight change. But like, if you think about the, the, mechanics of that right what we're doing there is essentially like maintaining a canter towards our solid object the wall and then it's a rapid shift to the outside leg so what have we really done we freed up the whole inside leg to be able to change and then they have to switch to that to rebalance themselves they couldn't continue on I mean, some of them find a way to, but like reasonably most of them will then switch you know if you get your timing and everything because they're changing directions and you're shifting your weight to really just get out of their way and kind of force that mechanics. So if we want to do that at a slower and more graceful scale of things, the same, the mechanics is still the same, but to do it more slowly requires that rocking back in the collection. So one of the things that I like to do other than just the real foundational pieces, a lot of times that can be the, the most helpful, like stop back up, right into the canter, like rocket into a, an upper speed, whether it's the trot and then works the canter. But then, I mean, introduce ground poles. Make sure that they understand like going over ground poles, doing it, whether, you know, just trotting over a single one so that there's an understanding there. But then do a flying chain or go for, ask for that change while they already have to lift up that limb. But it is really important. I really like this phrase. It was like, practice doesn't make perfect, perfect practice makes perfect. You have to really also not just throw them at a ground pole. They need to be able to come to the ground pole and step over it. And then you have the timing element. So there really, there's a lot of human component. There's a lot more flexibility in in building those ground pieces and, and being able to have those little kinks. But as you start asking for something that is truly a more advanced move when it is graceful and nice you need to be able to you know ask appropriately to have the timing right where they can switch their limb as you're asking for it so feeling that when that's happening feel the rhythm of your horse understand when that limb like you're you're wanting to go into the right lead so think think about even as you're still in the left lead when the right shoulder is hitting the ground because you have an opportunity before that movement to ask for it where they can reasonably respond. It's it's about setting them up for success and having them understand what you're asking them for. And, you know, it is a lot easier sometimes when, when you can ask across a pole, when they have that opportunity to kind of like, they're already lifting. But at the end of the day, the mechanics of it are the same. I, I could... I could go on about this. So <laughs> right. I, I'm not even sure that I'm answering your question. <laughs> like, I think but, we're in you a know, good, you, I thought we were in a good place for it. Yeah. <laughs> I think like it's a, it's right. Like it's a deceptively simple maneuver in some ways, but that's it has to thing. be executed yeah. just right. So right. And well, one thing I was like, thinking as you were talking, Leandra is, you know, if yeah. you've been riding your green horse for a long time, working them up to the point where you're ready to ask it might be a good idea to get on a schoolmaster or, you know, just Mm -hmm. something further along where you can ask for that lead change and just get it, you know, and get the feel again for yourself, you know, because I think a lot of us who are, you know, on these greener thoroughbreds um, or any breed, you know, like we've been riding green horses for so long, we sort of forget 
how to ask for these <laughs> maneuvers. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. Might be a good idea to I get on something it, finished. Like if you're skiing and you're still like, you know, working at the little, our little pie angle or like the little triangle, your little pie wedge is how I learned it, where it's like, that's how you break. Like when you get to a more advanced level of skiing, you're probably not breaking with your little pie wedge, but sometimes like working with the green horses, you stay in the same like pie wedge formation forever. Cause you're like working to help them baby through things so much that like you stay in the same phase of things too. So that's such a good mm-hmm. example. Oh, so you know, easy I, to keep the training wheels on for too long. <laughs> yes. Yeah, totally. We're just like riding around with our wide hands all the time to help them understand it. But I mean, that's totally true. Like, you, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes getting on that schoolmaster brings it right back. <laughs> yeah. And I know that, you know, that's not a possibility for everybody. Like they just might not have access to one. But yeah, if you're listening to this and thinking like, oh man, this sounds way more complicated than I remember. <laughs> it might be time, you know, just find somewhere, hop on a, a lesson horse or, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, something and just, uh, yeah, ride a couple of good lead changes on something experienced and then remember what it feels like. And that that's what I should have done <laughs> when I was first yeah. to also, a jobber. <laughs> just, a, just a good training tip if you need a confidence boost too. Um, I know yes. we've talked on, if anyone listened to our last episode with Amplify, how humbling a three and X racer can can be with, especially if it's your first time doing it. Um, mm-hmm. So hopping on that schoolmaster, there's nothing wrong with doing it. Just to make sure, like, oh, I actually do know what I'm doing. I just need that reminder that I'm working with a horse who is learning how to do those things. So great, and we got two tips today. <laughs> that's like you know my one last anecdote about this because I also love this is like if you think about learning a language, like it takes practice and consistency and like getting on a schoolmaster and kind of like making sure that you've got the pieces right too can help you in that way that you're not trying to constantly change to form to a horse who's learning. So in the example of learning a new language, it's like if you were learning the word for green in Spanish, it's like that it's there. And like, say you forget it then that word doesn't change its meaning, right? Like this, a teacher wouldn't be like, now green is orange. And you that would just be confusing. Like you have mm-hmm. to be able to stay consistent. But some of that requires us to have the confidence and the wherewithal to know that we are asking them appropriately and that they're just learning. Like it's just going to come but it ha- it requires the consistency. And t- sometimes we want to like change the way that we're asking all the time because it doesn't work the first couple of times. Good stuff. Definitely. Yeah, hopefully that helps, you know, because I know this was sort of a listener question first. So hopefully they've gotten a, a nice, well-rounded, in-depth response. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Awesome. All right. Well, let's take a look at our adoptable horse of the week, who is very cute. You always pick us a good one. Uh, if I sound distracted, it's because I've been watching his videos for a few minutes now. (laughs) (laughs) Leandra, tell us a little bit more about Close Talker. Close Talker is one of my favorites in the barn right now. He is a 2020 gelding. He's 16 hands, but he just is the, he is totally the fun size candy bar. You know, like he has a smaller appearance because he's kind of compact, but it's that it's, he's fun size. He's like the perfect in between where he could go in so many different directions with things. And his sire's Candy Ride, a Christian favorite. Yeah, that's and why I was like, you're doing this on Kristen purpose. Approved. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
also why it's funny that you called him a fun size candy bar. Cause I was like, wait a minute. Why, why didn't they just name him that? That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Keep going. Oh, I love it. And, um, so we call him Stewie in the barn. He has a like lovable curmudgeon kind of attitude where when you don't know him or when he's, he, ha- he kind of feels the need to put on this like macho personality. And so he, he'll like pin his ears back at you if you're grooming him in the cross ties. And it's like just to like get attention at this point, because he's really easy to set boundaries for. If you just kind of tell him like, we're best friends, you just forgot that. And he's like, Oh yeah, yeah. We're totally best friends. And he's really so much personality in such a good little package um, that I just have had the most fun seeing him progress in training. And what's really neat too, is that he retired from racing with no known injuries. He doesn't have any limitations in a second career. He is a very sporty, handy kind of ride and learns in leaps and bounds. So he really could go in lots of different directions. Like I said before, you just have to have a sense of humor to be able to pull him out of his little cranky face. And I think once he matures too, he will get out of this uh, teenage high schooler. Like I have to test you kind of phase of things because when he knows somebody and he sees them routinely, that testing kind of goes away. So it's, it's a phase of things. We see it a lot, um, but definitely not to be scared off from because he's just such a perfect package. Oh my gosh. His uh, like pedigree notes, like look at this lineup, candy ride, crypto clearance, tap it, Indian Charlie. That's like a who's who. I know. He's like, like yeah. he's <laughs> royal, like in some ways, like he's got some famous pedigree names on here. Yeah, now I want to look him up. Surely this horse went through auction and probably just on his pedigree alone, I imagine, was a hot commodity. So hang on while I uh, Google that real fast. Well, I'm just going to brag how much I like him because he does have like a softness to his face. And I love Mm -hmm. that he's he's refined. And I think that's such a pretty look for thoroughbreds. I love the warm blood look. I love like the chunky look and even like the classic thoroughbred look. I don't think any of them are wrong, but there is something maybe because I came from Arabs about that more refined type um, Mm -hmm. that really draws me in because I just think they're so pretty to photograph at the end of the day. And he's that gorgeous bay. He's got chrome. um, He's got nice dappling and his videos. Oh my gosh. He is such a mover. He really reminds me of my husband's horse, like in his face, you know, who is like a very similar personality, but is a lovely horse. Mm-hmm. that's funny <laughs> and definitely check out his free jump video because we had a blast with him he showed us so much bravery and tackled every challenge without rotting his eyes oh including all the dogs oh this is delightful everyone should watch this video. yes <laughs> <laughs> what a good boy <laughs> but i like watching yeah. him go and he he could go that's in so many directions <laughs> you know he's yeah. he's a good height he's 16 hands which i always say is like perfect size for just about anybody um Mm -hmm. but also watching him like he would be very pretty in the hunter ring he could do jumpers he could do dressage i'm seeing him like round his neck up as he's trying to figure out you know where to be on the bit you know he's still learning but there's so much potential that i could easily see him get a western saddle thrown on him and you can have some fun doing ranch work too truly those candy rides they look like ranch horses (laughs) (laughs) 
And, and Christ, you watch like, him. Please stop. <laughs> <laughs> you can see him uh, try to navigate my dogs, trying to help him with the free jump also. So he's already used to working around, you know, other creatures. So if you wanted him as a ranch hand, he's, so he's, he's, he's ready to go. At this point. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Considering cool that's how our dogs are. <laughs> but cut right like, in front of you. And he's just like, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. He's been rated level five, which I think that would be a fun conversation too, Landris, to like revisit the levels in a future episode of just what those mean to new vocations. But he's a level five in that physical capability. So he can really go anywhere. So if you're looking for the horse who is super cleared by the vet, ready to go, I think you need to look at Close Talker. He's at horseadoption.com and his adoption fee is a whopping $3,500. Come on, guys. That's that's a fraction of probably what he went at an auction. I don't know if you pulled that up, Kristen, but it'd be really yeah, cool actually, if he did. He, uh, he RNA'd, <laughs> so actually he didn't even bring enough at auction for 80000 So his people oh. valued him very high, which is clearly what he's worth. So yeah, he Amazing. ran for his breeders, So, which I think there is you cool. Go. There you go. So check them out, horseadoption.com. And if you have questions or you're looking for your next heart horse, reach out to Leandra Cooper. She has plenty and she will find the right fit for you. Leandra, thank you so much for joining us and starting this year with us. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. Until next time. Joy, it's always really cool when our shows sort of develop their own natural theme, don't you think? I I would love to say that we planned it. But it's just the way it it worked out today. So what I really thought was cool was both Raymond and Marta touched on, you know, the the sort of door-to-door aspect and working hard aspect of working anywhere in the horse industry, you know, especially the racing industry. Um, but I thought that was a really cool takeaway message. And it was cool because they were talking on such different topics, um, mm-hmm. you know, but still kind of hit on that same theme. So and if there's anyone who understands hard work, it's all of us horse people. So hopefully you all enjoyed that takeaway as much as we did. You can find our show notes and links to today's guests on the website at horseradionetwork.com. Like us on Facebook and Instagram. We have a lot of fun. Just search for Retired Racehorse Radio. Follow us on Twitter at Horse Radio. You can find me on Instagram at The Horseback Rider. And I am back on Facebook again at Jobber Bill Racehorse to Ranch Horse. My email is kbentley at the rrp.org. You can find me on Instagram at MissFitMayor. And my email is joy at horseradionetwork.com. Thank you so much to our sponsors, Kentucky Performance Products, Cashel Company, and Morton Buildings, and to our partners, New Vocations Resource Adoption Program and the Retired Resource Project. Don't forget to check out all the other shows on the Horse Radio Network, part of Equine Network at horseradionetwork.com. Remember to set your goals high and love to learn from every ride and add more leg. Bye, guys. Bye.